<clears throat> so does anybody need a handout from that doesn't have one? So, um, <clears throat> all right. I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. I tried to, I endeavored to, uh, actually, I'll let you steward those. I, I got me one. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, Rex. I do need one. <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> we covered a lot of ground last week, but uh, we didn't get it all in. And so um, I'll kind of review for those of you, if you were not here on some of the things that we, we covered. Coming off of Easter, thanks, Jesse. Coming off of Easter, I was just wanting to kind of touch on um, really some things I had prepared during the Easter <clears throat> week, and then I realized I wasn't up on Wednesday, so I delayed it a week. So <clears throat> now we're three weeks late, three weeks later on all this, but uh, it's always good to talk about the resurrection and why believing the resurrection is reasonable. And so we have covered a lot. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though our sins be as scarlet, of course, he'll make them white as snow. And we covered several points last week, and I, I gave you this A list, uh, which is a modification of a list that I, I have I stole from uh, probe.org uh, because it's a really good way to summarize some of the reasons that we, uh, you know, we believe the resurrection because the Bible is very clear. That's the long and short of it. But uh, the biggest reason is is accurate prophecy. And we covered a great deal of prophecy last week. That's as far as we got last week. And I flew through some of the other points, but I, I stopped and said we'll pick them up this week. So the second was attesting miracles, which we'll look at this week. Uh, the third is his agonizing death, which we'll look at this week if the Lord permits antagonistic authorities, uh, which it won't take a lot of time on that, and absent body, right? The grave was empty. Uh, the amazed disciples, right? Uh, these disciples um, fled. The Bible's very clear. It doesn't romanticize the relationship at all between Jesus and his disciples. They, uh, they were amazed themselves by what took place. Uh, the agreeing eyewitnesses, uh, which is very compelling, even in a legal sense to this very day. The apostolic martyrs, the agnostic historians are even a witness, uh, and the attesting spirit. Of course, that is not to be uh, least, even though it's last. The Spirit of God teaches us all things whatsoever God has shown us, and that includes the resurrection. All right, so those are, um, if you didn't get those last week, hopefully you got those this week. And uh, and then we covered, and I'm not going to go through all these slowly or fast. I should or slowly because of time. But we talked about Jesus's testimony as the spirit of prophecy, <clears throat> and I gave you a sampling of prophecies. Um, and uh, we ran through the seed of a woman in Genesis three that, that Jesus is heir to the throne of David. We saw that he was born in Bethlehem. Uh, we saw the time of his birth was prophesied. The time that uh, or the fact that he would be born of a virgin was prophesied. We, we looked at the, the fact that his Galilean ministry was prophesied. The fact that he was rejected by his own people, the Jews, is prophesied, and that's not even exhaustive. The priest after the order of Melchizedek uh, is, is also a prophecy, his priesthood. Uh, the triumphal entry, this is not exhaustive at all. Uh, there's a lot more we could look at here. It, I didn't even list uh, on that on triumphal entry, Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 lays that out right down to the, the day. And so his triumphal entry, um, how he entered the temple with authority, which was the same day as his triumphal entry, and also a dual application as he will eventually uh, come back and establish his throne. Um, and then he was adored by infants. That's a kind of a, a hidden 
not a hidden, but it's not a well, you know, publicized reality of the prophecies. So, but you remember out of the mouth of babes, uh, Matthew twenty-one fifteen through sixteen, uh, the sheep of the shepherd, or the sheep is smitten, and the shepherd, uh, the sheep are scattered when the shepherd is smitten. The sheep of the shepherd scattered, but you know the verse there. So when he was smitten, the she- the sheep were scattered. That was a picture of, uh, or that is right out of the prophecy of the Old Testament. The fact that he's betrayed by Judas. There's many more. When you study the son of perdition, there's many more prophecies about Judas. These are just a sampling in your notes about how Jesus would be betrayed by Judas with a kiss. All those things are recorded in the Bible. Uh, the fact that he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, that's a, that's a, also contained in the Old Testament, Zechariah 11. Uh, my price, 30 pieces of silver. That's exactly what was paid uh, for his betrayal. And then the, uh, in addition to that, the betrayal money was used to buy a potter's field. And so it mentions that in Zechariah 11:13. The Lord said unto me, cast it upon the potter, a goodly price that I was praised or prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And so you see even that interaction. It's amazing, the details of the Old Testament prophecy. Um, Psalms 35, 11. Uh, he was accused by false witnesses, and of course, I think every, all of us know that. Um, uh, he was silent to his accusers, like the landlord of the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. He was dumb bef- his, uh, before her shears, dumb, so he opened not his mouth, it says in Isaiah 53, 7. He was spat on and struck. Uh, that was also prophesied. He was scourged, uh, hated without reason. Um, Isaiah 53, uh, 5 shows that he had a, he was our, our vicarious sacrifice, agreeing with Romans 5, 6 through 8. He was crucified with male factors, uh, pierced through uh, hands and the feet. He was sneered and mocked. Uh, he was reproached. Uh, people shook their heads at him. Literally, even the details of what people were doing. I became also a reproach unto them when they looked upon me. They shake their heads. And uh, so we saw that last week, getting down right to the details of his crucifixion. He was given vinegar for, vinegar for thirst, uh, which is prophesied in Psalm 69, 21, uh, exactly as it was done. Prayer for his enemies, and uh, he prayed for them, uh, just as he, you know, just as he actually commands us to do. I just wrote a devotion about that today, loving your enemies. So any soldiers gambled for his clothing. And uh, Psalms 22, we could read all of Psalm 22, which is the thoughts of Jesus on the cross. But Psalm 22, 17 says, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. So that was prophesied all the way back in Psalm 22. You get, the, you get a Jesus eye view of what's going on in Psalm 22. So if you've never read the whole of Psalm 22, you should. And of course, what, what's after Psalm 22? 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So you actually see the, the victory as well as you go through from the 22nd Psalm to the 23rd Psalm. It's pretty awesome to read in the true sense of the word. So soldiers gambled for his clothing. That's one of the prophecies in Psalm 22. Here's another one, very familiar to all of us. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? All the way back from Psalm 22, verse 1, recorded uh, in several places, of course, he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, uh, which, of course, is being interpreted as, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So uh, that was already prophesied in Psalm chapter 22 as well. Uh, Psalm 35 or 31.5, he, he committed his spirit to God. And uh, 
<clears throat> and of course, we know that's what he did before he gave up the ghost. Psalm 38, 11, my lovers and my friends stand aloof uh, from my sore and my kinsmen stand afar off. You thought that was just talking about David, but when you look back at uh, what happened in Luke 23, 49, that was also a prophecy of uh, doctrinally what was going to happen with Jesus as he was forsaken by everyone and they stood afar off. Uh, Psalm 34, 20, he keepeth all my bones. Uh, none of, not one of them is broken. This is a really important prophecy because the Bible is clear that he did not break a bone. Uh, now his body was obviously penetrated with a uh, with nails and his uh, hole in his side, but uh, his bones were not broken. So that's an important prophecy. Uh, he, all these prophecies are so accurate. His side was pierced, as I just mentioned. Darkness came over the land. That's a prophecy from the Old Testament. He was buried with the rich, which fulfills a prophecy. Of course, the resurrection, which is what we're talking about, prophesied multiple places. And this is just, again, a sampling. It's, there's so many more places we could talk about. The resurrection was an established fact before Jesus resurrected. So the Jews uh, argued with the Sadducees over the resurrection because it was such a, a known reality of the Scripture. You either believe it literally. He talks to Job and, uh, before the law was written about the resurrection. <clears throat> and, uh, and so those are things that, that uh, were well established. So the issue isn't, is there a resurrection uh, issue is, did Jesus resurrect? And of course he did, and he's more than just resurrected. He is the resurrection and the life. And then we saw that uh, he sent the Holy Spirit. Uh, his ascension to God's right hand was prophesied, um, which is a very important aspect of the resurrection. He didn't just rise from the dead like Lazarus, and then Lazarus died later. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and is there right now. And we in, we get our mission, Romans or Acts chapter 1-8, as he ascended. Uh, he ascended after he resurrected and went to the Father um, and then he came back. I'll talk about that here in a little bit uh, with his miracles. But he uh, he and he came back, and then he, for forty days he taught. And then in Acts one eight, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is there right now. So the point is that Jesus is alive, and he's alive right now. That was probably one of the biggest things that got me saved. I I could I could handle a historical Jesus, but when I really processed the fact that historical Jesus rose from the dead and is alive right now. That really changed the whole ball game because then all the other prophecies that I was reading, like Revelation and Daniel, uh, would have to come to pass, and they haven't, and they don't look very good. So I was definitely looking for the exit door. <laughs> like, uh-oh, I better get on this Savior bandwagon because uh, this guy is the way, the truth, and the life. So the reality of the resurrection really impacted me personally uh, and the ascension, the fact that Jesus is alive right now sitting at the right hand of the Father you know, it really, it really, when I was lost, it really brought a lot of, of conviction to my heart about my need uh, to deal with the resu- with the Savior now, and not wait till I die and just you know hope it goes okay or my good outweighs my bad, because I knew that was probably not going to happen. And uh, and so you know those those are important important prophecies. The Gentiles will seek the Messiah. Okay, so that got that got us through um, the. Uh, the whole list, and I just kind of jumped through that real fast. You guys got all those blanks, I'm sure, from last week. So if you didn't, uh, I can... Uh, the, actually, the PowerPoint is up on online under this sermon series, so you can go... Yeah, it is. I put it up three weeks ago. The PowerPoint notes are, aren't they? This PowerPoint's not up there? Oh, okay. Well, then it, you just you just have the outline... So I need to put the PowerPoint up there, I guess. So uh, 
the uh, so then you can't. You'll have to go back and listen to this if you missed them, or come see me afterward. I'll get it to you. All right. So the attesting miracles. Um, uh, the thing that we and we did touch on this last week. I went real fast. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back over these much slower. I'm gonna be kind and rewind, as Alan Shelby says. So I want to just look at the attesting miracles because there's and I'm in, in the book of John. There's seven miracles that you can go through and lay out. Um, and the the book of John reveals Jesus Christ as God. So I just want to touch on these. I'm not gonna do an ex- expansive, you know, discussion on every miracle, or we'd be here for uh, several more months. But um, <clears throat> but I do want to just touch on the miracles because uh, that is one of the things, especially for the Jews. The Jews require a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. So Jesus did these miracles uh, that were outstanding and revealed that he was God. So if you have your Bible, turn to John. And I just gave you references last week. I want to look at the references this week and finish this up. John chapter 2 and uh, in verse 1. John chapter 2 and verse 1. We're just going to look at the first part of this chapter as uh, as we jump into this. Jesus is, by the way, in each gospel, if you're new to the Bible, uh, Matthew, um, there's four gospels, like I needed to learn that when I got saved, and they all are the same story four times over. Um, and so uh, each gospel, you get a different view of Jesus as the Messiah. So they're not conflicting or contradicting, they're complementary. They complement each other, just like if you have four witnesses at a traffic scene, each witness has a different set of uh, parameters that they're adding to the the event, and they do they are harmonized. You can actually find harmonies of the gospels, and they harmonize all the verses. Uh, some of them are lineally, like Luke, go in order, and others don't so much, and they kind of skip over things. So sometimes it's hard to harmonize them. So sometimes those tools can be helpful. But if you're just getting new to the Bible, one of the things that can help your brain get your head around each of the gospels as I jump into these, and then we'll spend most of our time in John, as Matthew deals with Jesus. Let me ask you guys, this is Bible study. Uh, Matthew views Jesus as what? Anybody know? Brianna, you don't know. Put you on the spot. I bet Ron knows. No? King, there you go. Ron is very gracious, not to always answer. But uh, the king... Uh, and so, right, and so what's Mark? Now, by the way, let me back up. So his lineage, if you go through Matthew, that's why a lot of times at Christmas you'll see us in Matthew, uh, Matthew or Luke, because those are the two lineages. But Matthew will take him back to his uh, uh, to the kingly line of David. And so it, it leads you uh, to that royal line. And it doesn't. it's not as concerned about Adam as Luke. We'll get to that in a minute. So it's the kingly line. That's where you see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is also laid out in Matthew, and you get both kingdoms at hand there. And there's just a lot going on in Matthew regarding the king and his kingdom. Um, and, of course, he came to the Jews, which is the, the kingdom in which he came initially to establish uh, physically and fulfill those promises. Okay, so you got that. Then Mark is, does anybody know what that is? Jesus, uh, you see him as a what? Servant. Very good. And how, what's one of the interesting things about that that you'll note one of the things that's interesting about Mark is there's no uh, there's no lineage. It just opens up and starts, right? Because a servant doesn't have any any pedigree, so to speak. There's no heritage. Although of course Jesus has a heritage. It's listed in two different epistles. But Mark views him as a servant, and so you get a different view of Jesus as a servant, and he's just ministering away all the way through the book of Mark, and he's calling out his disciples. A lot of good. I love Mark. Mark's a great book. And then Luke. Jesus says, 
Yeah, son of man, perfect man, right? So you got you got the king, you got the servant, and you got the uh, son of man. You literally see him as a man, and so it's it's also written in a chronological order. So it's one of the if it's the one if you're like me, an old Gentile that likes to work in lists, you know, because I don't think circularly like a like a uh, Oriental person. Uh, then it's the book that you key on historically, uh, so that you can put everything in around it and make it make sense in a lineal fashion. So uh, I personally like the book of Luke for that reason. Plus, it's very detailed in the physical aspects of the of, the, of a lot of things, not just the crucifixion, but all kinds of like details. He's very detail oriented which is also kind of groovy if you're into details. And he puts a lot of things into the physical uh, aspects of Jesus being Luke the beloved physician, as Paul writes. So he's, uh, he's got a lot, of, a lot of details on the crucifixion uh, that would be medically accurate as well. So uh, Luke is, is a good, is, is, they're all good, but Luke is the, uh, it was written to, to, uh, to it opens up, uh, and, it, and it, it's the same uh, going to the same person as the book of Acts, it says, uh, O Theophilus, there, uh, and it says in verse 1, For as much as ye have taken in hand to set forth and ordered uh, a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they deliver them unto us from the beginning, which are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Um, I don't know where I, I'm thinking of the book of Acts. Oh, there it is, verse 3. It seemed good. Uh, to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order for for a Gentile, most excellent Theophilus. And so he's also uh, mentioned in the book of Acts. So this sets uh, sets things in order for us. And then lastly, and most importantly for this point on the miracles, and this is why I went through all that drill, the fourth one is, uh, you can, is Jesus as Son of God, which I've already mentioned. So you got him as the king, the servant, the son of man, and then the son of God. And a lot of times people also would like to, they like to liken the four faces of a cherub to each one of those. Um, a man, an ox, uh, an eagle, and a, I forget the other one now, but uh, a man, an ox, an eagle, and what's the other one? A lion. Yeah, lion, John, the book of John, lion tribe of Judah. And so... Uh, so, yeah, a lot of times people try to match that. I don't know about all that. But I do know that those four views are accurate uh, in regard to how the, the Gospels get. So you open up here, and again, you go back to Jesus being the Word. So you you don't have a detailed lineage of his life. He is the Word. He is in the beginning. He is God. He's introduced as God, and he is God. And that's the point of the, the epistle of John is to, to reveal Jesus Christ as, as who he is, and that's God. And he has these miracles. And the first one we see in John 2 and verse 1 is this miracle of turning water into wine. And it says, In the third day when there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, um, <clears throat> and, both Jesus was, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, uh, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water, 
that was made uh, wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water uh, knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This uh, beginning of the miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. All right, so this is a really important miracle, mainly to who? The disciples, right? It wasn't manifestly evident to everybody there what was going on. Um, But the disciples knew that Jesus had just turned this water into wine. And the purpose of this miracle was to reveal Jesus' new covenant was better than the old covenant. Of course, practically speaking, for these disciples to follow him. And the Hebrew, uh, Hebrews clearly teaches us that Jesus' sacrifice was greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system established under Moses. So we see that before Israel and the law of Moses, sacrifices were instituted to cover sin, going all the way back to the Edemic dispensation under Adam in Genesis 3.21. And you have this water to wine, and uh, the water, or this wine, well, the water and wine both represent, uh, the water represents the Word of God, the wine represents the Spirit of God uh, in the Bible and type when you go through the Bible. But um, the issue here is is that there's also um, wine is called the, the blood of the grape. There's a pure blood of the grape, and then there's a fermented wine, which is not pure blood. It's been, it's been fermented, just like the leaven. The leaven leavens a lump of bread, right? And so uh, he puts new wine in these in these uh, uh, these pots, and it's a picture of the new covenant. And and so uh, again, getting back to his sacrifice, all the way back in Genesis three twenty one. I know you guys are familiar with this. That's when there's a, the first sacrifice we see when the Lord said, "Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil." And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so God had brought together this man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he had a reproductive plan for them to be fruitful, multiply, replenish, and subdue the earth. And it got hijacked by uh, Satan um, as they took of the forbidden fruit, which many believe to be the grape, and there's a good reason to believe that. Um, Whether it was or wasn't, who knows, but... We'll know when we get to heaven. At the end of the day, um, uh, it corrupted them, right? Their, their whole, they fell. Their blood system changed. Everything changed. They knew they were naked, their conscience. They, they were no longer what they were before they took of the forbidden fruit. So what effectively happened? Well, Satan messed up the first marriage, which is his always plan. So you get married, just know this. Satan wants to corrupt your communion with your spouse. And he wants to get between you and corrupt the word of God. And so uh, it's, no, it's no mistake that Jesus shows up at a wedding. The first place to do his miracles uh, publicly for his disciples, which ends up becoming the seed of the church in Acts 1.8. Once the church is quickened, they become, it's like a baby, it's a body, and then it breathes in their nostrils a breath of life, they become a living soul. So the church is in formation in the Gospels, but it's, it becomes quickened in Acts chapter 2. And, uh, and then, of course, goes out, as uh, throughout the book of Acts, as it morphs into the the Gentile bride that we are today, awaiting uh, the return of Christ because Israel rejected the.
their Messiah in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth in the book of Acts, leaving it to the Gentile bride, a picture of Ruth in the Old Testament. God already had that planned. And so Jesus is establishing uh, this first miracle. These things are incredible. The Bible is amazing when you just start putting it all together. It's outstanding. And so he's calling out a bride. Now he's going to do that through a blood, his own sacrifice. In the Old Testament, there was a blood sacrifice, and they killed an animal, and he covered their nakedness. Of course, Jesus is going to be that, and that not that animal. He's the Lamb of God, and he dies a Christ. That's what the whole Easter celebration is about, the Passover in reality, not Easter. But the Passover is about that. And, uh, and so God is using that first miracle to re- at, a, at a miracle, or at a, at a marriage, I should say, to reveal to his disciples who he is. He's hidden to everybody else, but they have a special relationship with him. And he starts his public ministry. Uh, obviously, he's announced by John the Baptist, but this miracle uh, is important to his disciples. It says in verse 11, it says, Take uh, this uh, beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. He's going after his disciples here. Uh, these disciples become witnesses. So this miracle of, of impacts them. So notice how, go to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 with me. Uh, Hebrews 9 and verse 11. Someone want to read? Well, i got a lot of verses. I'm going to read this for so I don't bog us down. Uh, Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. Um, it says, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling and unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without spot, purge our conscience from dead works and serve the living God? And for this uh, cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by the means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Uh, for where the testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he, t- he took blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Saying, um, uh, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood uh, both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things by the law uh, are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It is therefore necessary that the patterns... Uh, of things in heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, not now to appear in the presence of God for us, uh, nor yet the, nor yet that he uh, should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of, of others, 
for then must he often uh, have suffered sins uh, since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ uh, once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. All right, so we see here that that, uh, Jesus Christ is the only acceptable sacrifice. So Hebrews takes us past Jesus' death, his burial and resurrection, to establish uh, the New Testament, this new covenant, which is also pictured as he has this new... Uh, this this water turns into wine. It's a New Testament. It's a picture of his of his uh, uh, you know his power to establish a New Testament and to to unify us and and also there's a shadow there of the marriage that uh, he will have with the bride of Christ. So in Christ you're neither Jew. I, want, I do want to be clear about this because the bride of Christ is primarily composed of Gentiles, but in Christ it's neither Jew nor Greek, but a new creature. So his bride is a unique calling out of people who are born again. That's why to be part of the bride of Christ, you must be born again. And so uh, there's a shadow of that in the turning the water to the wine because we become part of the bride of Christ by being born again through the blood of the Lamb, through a better sacrifice. And so uh, the Old Testament law is no longer in effect. That old wine is no longer necessary. We got a new wine, and it came after the old wine, right? And so... Uh, and so that's uh, basically uh, a shadow there, a picture there. And that miracle, that goes on and on. We could preach for a long time about that one miracle, but I'm going to move along. So any, let me pause there. Any questions about that miracle or any, any comments? So that's just one uh, miracle. Let's look at the second one here. Uh, the healing of the nobleman's son, uh, John 4, 30, uh, John 4 30, uh, 43, I should say. Uh, anybody want to read that verse, 43 through 54? Hey, Rex, let me put you, are you going to read it? Let me put you on the mic. That way it goes out to the, if there's, are we online tonight? Then people online can hear you. After two days, it's there. Okay, sorry. You just got to hold it up to your mouth. It'll go. After two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he that he did at Jerusalem, at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again to Canaan of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And um, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had 
spoken unto him, and he went his way. And he... All the way to the end. Yep. Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, and thy son liveth. And with 51. And he, as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. This is, again, the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay, so thank you. I should have put a map up here so you can kind of get the idea. But uh, I think the text is pretty self-explanatory with the healing of the nobleman's son. Jesus had power to heal the nobleman's son without seeing him or visiting him. And, of course, as we get to the end of that text there, they inquired in verse 52, and they're like, oh, it ha- as soon as he said it, it happened. And, and so uh, the nobleman believed Jesus had his word, and his son was healed immediately, as was attested to. So uh, this is a, an instant miracle, which is also kind of a picture of our salvation. As soon as you believe and you call upon the name of the Lord, the Holy Ghost comes in you, and you, you're saved. And so it's kind of cool how that's just a good preaching point. But uh, there are two pictures that you can see in this miracle. The faith of the nobleman in the power of Jesus' ability to heal and uh, picturing how, of course, we're saved by grace through faith. And as, course, as Jesus was offering himself to Israel, uh, he was there to uh, heal that nation. Um, but the immediate nature in which we see the healing is important. If Israel would have received Jesus at his word, they would have been healed uh, just as we are the moment we call upon the name of the Lord. They wouldn't receive Jesus at his word. So this miracle also shows a testament to what Jesus was looking for uh, from the nation of Israel, which was to believe his word and uh, and his ability to fulfill his promise. Uh, and, of course, that wasn't going to happen. You notice, too, this is, uh, again, located in Canaan, uh, up there in verse uh, 54. It says, Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem, at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Uh, let's see, where am I at there? I'm missing verse 48. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Uh, and so you see here that he's back in Cana again, uh, where there is this uh, this second miracle done. So uh, that's an interesting uh, aspect as well. So... It, you know, he he came in this point. At this point, they were receiving the word, but it isn't. If you go back to, uh, well, the other gospels, they, he they end up rejecting Jesus in Canaan and Galilee. And so he uh, obviously he called out his disciples there, but he came to his own, his own received him not. So that's where he's from. It's his hometown. Same thing happens in Samaria. So in John chapter four, which we'll get to, he he heals the he has the the woman at the well. And uh, and they receive it really well in Samaria, but by the end of his his uh, three and a half year run, they reject him in Samaria. So a lot of people don't realize that that Jesus was direct, direct, he before his his death he was rejected in Samaria, and so he was also rejected in Cana. They were going to kill Jesus um, in Cana or in Galilee, um, and 
uh, he walked through the midst of. And when he got, you know, the passage where he gets up and he reads from the Old Testament and, uh, and he preaches about the acceptable year of the Lord, and then he sets down in the synagogue in Cana, or not in Cana, but in Galilee, then uh, uh, he preaches to them and they can't take it. And next thing you know, some in the city want to destroy him. They want to kill him, and they come. They take him to a place where they're going to kill him, and he just disappears from the midst of them and keeps going on about his business like nothing went on. So, um, but uh, Jesus was uh, he was offering himself to the people who had received him until they didn't, which he did that pretty much throughout all of Israel, uh, ultimately culminating in Jerusalem where they rejected him. But even Samaria ended up rejecting him before his death. And uh, that's why we can't get too big for our britches, because if we're honest, we've all rejected Jesus at different times. And so um, he is so gracious and kind to love us anyway. Uh, Okay, so um, the third miracle is the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And uh, just go to chapter 5 and verse 1. After this, there there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was at Jerusalem by the sheep uh, market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at the certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, uh, uh, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. So he'd been there a long time. When Jesus saw him uh, lie and knew that he had been now laying a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man wherein the water is troubled to put me in the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise and take thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on that same day was the Sabbath. So here, this is an interesting miracle as well, and I think we're familiar with these miracles, but these these uh, poor souls were tied to the tradition and the superstition and even per, perhaps demonic powers that were stirring the waters, um, uh, which again is emblematic of where Israel was at. There was tradition, there was superstition. They had gone beyond the law in many cases and created their own rules and regulations, kind of like a legalistic Baptist church. And uh, and then they were also tied to superstition, like a, a Roman Catholic church, right? So they had all these things going on at that time, and that uh, Jesus rolls up into the midst of this thing. And there's real, at the, and, and the sad thing is, there's real people with real problems, depending on these things to get healing. And uh, and of course, you know the story; we just read it. So they believed on this angel, uh, pure, periodically stirring the waters at the pool. Uh, and of course, first one uh, in wins, right? So it's a merit-based system, and uh, and Jesus like blows it all away. Um, and so as he gets this cripple into the pool, uh, 38 years of being crippled and repeatedly trying and trying and trying and failing, uh, and then Jesus just walks up and heals him. So let me ask you all: What do you think the big deal is? What's he trying to get across here? If you know the story and you keep reading, it's easy to find out. What what's he revealing? Um, in this passage, in the in, in regard to um, I heard somebody, I don't know where where it came from. Oh, Diane, I'm sorry. Was you? Did you have something to say? Oh.
Yeah, but to the Jews, he's also communicating something. Uh, communicating something. Yeah, that's exactly. And and then what day does he do it on? Right, so that ties into the works. So he gets this guy to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath day. Now, they don't have a problem with the stirring of the waters and someone fighting to get in, but they have a real problem when Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath day and tells him to get up and take his bed and walk because it's the day of rest. And, of course, Jesus is like, hey, man, if, if your ox is stalled, do you not get him out on the Sabbath? You know, so... But ultimately what Jesus is teaching them uh, is that he is, he is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, if you go to Mark chapter 12 and verse 8, um, you can see Jesus actually, he actually says that uh, in Mark 12. And that's a big deal. Um, Mark 12, 8 says, and, and they took him and killed him. Oh, wait, that's not right. Uh, Mark 12, Matthew 12, sorry. Matthew 12, I had the wrong reference. Matthew chapter 12, there we go. That's much better. Um, Matthew 12 and verse 8. It says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he departed thence, he went into their synagogue. So here we see that, that Christ healeth, uh, he, heals on the, he heals on the Sabbath day again. He went on the Sabbath day, journey through the corn, and the Pharisees saw that it, that it was him and his disciples, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, but when he gets down to uh, uh, verse 5, it says, or, or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this uh, meaneth, I would have mercy and not sacrifice. You would have uh, condemned the guiltless. For You would not have condemned the guiltless, I should say. Um, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, and when he had departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And so what Jesus was teaching them, because they were giving him grief over when his disciples could, you know, were, were eating corn in the field and all this stuff, and, and he's like, hey, listen, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord, of the, and that's really what he's demonstrating as well at the Pool of Bethesda, is that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So what is the Sabbath? Let's just back up a minute and talk about the Sabbath. Is that like Black Sabbath, a rock group? or I mean, what is the Sabbath? I mean, I don't know. It's not a word we use very much. Yeah, it's the day. Of, where's the first Sabbath seen in the Bible? Yeah, Genesis. It's the seventh day, day of rest, right? So under the law, that gets carried forward. It's the day of rest. So they had all the ceremonial things that you shouldn't do. And that's all true, right? In the Exodus, when you came out of Egypt... Uh, and God gave manna on the seventh day. They weren't to collect it. They could collect it uh, on the day before, but the seventh day, it was to, they were not to, to do that. Now, they weren't to store it up any other day either. So it was just, the, in essence, Friday. They could store up for Saturday because Saturday was the Sabbath. Sabbath day is Saturday. Uh, Monday is not the first day of the week. Sunday is. And so uh, Sunday is the first day of the week. That's the day of the resurrection. So Sabbath day is a day of rest. So we know that the, the 7,000-year 7, history of the world, so to speak, uh, from Genesis uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 forward to the to uh, eternity future in Revelation chapter 21 is 7,000 years. A day of the Lord is 1,000 years, and 1,000 years is one day. So the first 4,000 years leads, leads us up to Christ and his crucifixion. The next 2,000 years leads us through the church age, the catching way of the church, 
And then, of course, at the end of that, we'll conclude Daniel's 70th week, the, the, the short seven-year period where God will finish up the prophecies of Daniel, and then we will have the millennial reign of Christ, which is the seventh day, a thousand-year period. And that seventh day, is Jesus is the Lord of that. Uh, who inherits that Sabbath day, by the way? Who's looking forward to that? Who? The Jews. Very good. Yeah. So it's not the church. Some people think, oh man, I can't wait for the millennium. That's for us. Actually, our, our inheritance is Jesus. We get Jerusalem above. It's the, the mother of us all. But we have Christ. He is our inheritance. So we got even a better inheritance. But the Jews will rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. Jesus Christ will sit on the throne in Jerusalem, and all of those prophecies will come to pass. Um, as many of those as there are about his crucifixion, by the way, his second coming and the establishment of his kingdom. So that's important when he rolls up and says, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. That's, a, that's pregnant with meaning, meaning I am God. If you're Lord of the Sabbath, you're the one who instituted it, which is another reason they hated him and wanted to kill him because that was hard for them to, to process. I'm, you're Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, you're greater than the temple. You're, you're saying you're God. Bingo. That's why it's in the book of John. And so uh, let's look at the fourth miracle. Uh, as we're turning to John chapter 6, uh, which you don't have to turn far, uh, I'll just say this about the last miracle. Um, the nation of Israel was lame, right? They needed Jesus. They didn't need rules and traditions and superstitions. They needed Jesus to save them. And that's the same that holds true today, by the way. And so we need Jesus' help in a bad way. So we're promised that we will rise from the dead because he rose from the dead. That's what that's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Fourth miracle is the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 and verse 1. The Bible says, And after these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is uh, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them, and were dis- uh, diseased. And the Jews went up in a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, uh, a feast, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Uh, when the, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread <clears throat> that these may eat? And he said, and he said uh, to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in a number of about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves when he had given thanks, and he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as many as they would. And when they were filled, he saith unto the disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that are eat, them that had eaten. Then those men which they had seen, uh, had seen the miracles that Jesus did, said, uh, said This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. All right. So was Jesus a prophet? Well, yeah, he was. But he was more than a prophet. He was God. So you see the feeding of the 5,000, one of the best-known miracles of the Lord Jesus, and the only one before the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. So you're going to find this in every single Gospel. So you have this large crowd that's gathered, and they follow Jesus to a remote location, and Jesus could see that they needed to be fed. But the men... 
uh, alone numbered 5,000. When you add women and children, it could have been much, much, at least double that. It could have been 10,000 or more. So Andrew found a boy with five small barley loaves and uh, two small fishes, and Jesus multiplied it to the satisfying meal for everyone. And then there's enough to be left over for 12 baskets. And, uh, and I find the numbers interesting here. So 12 baskets, how many tribes are there in Israel? 12 tribes, and right? And then there's 5,000. Five in the Bible represents the, the law. And uh, you, have, you have this. There's another feeding of the 4,000. How many, how many uh, um, baskets are collected there? Does anyone know? It's a different miracle. A lot of times those are conflated, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Your scholars will say, well, you know, they just, they just got the numbers off. That's why you need a new Bible. No, it isn't, because they collected seven baskets. All right, so one uh, is uh, 4,000, they collect seven baskets. One is 5,000, they, uh, uh, they collect 12 baskets. Of course, 12 is the number of the nation of Israel. God's word is sufficient for the nation of Israel. Uh, God's word is also sufficient for the church. There's seven churches, seven, and so there's seven baskets. And so it's just interesting how these miracles uh, progress. You also see that the disciples are part of this process, uh, the, the miracle happens at the hands of the disciples. You, obviously, Jesus is the power, but he works through the disciples to distribute the bread. It's a picture for us of how God goes through the church. Uh, he, he ordains the church to get the gospel where it needs to go, and he uses us, in spite of ourselves, like the disciples, to multiply and magnify his word in the lives of other people. And then there's always enough left over uh, you know, to, to go on. And I love how it's the 12 and the, and the 7 baskets, depending on which story you look at. And so, um, so, so the feeding of the of the, the five thousand is a, is a really incredible miracle, and this is a practical demonstration of the Lord's promise that if we seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these other things will be added unto us. And so, in verse thirty five, it says, "And Jesus saith unto him, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst." So Jesus Christ is sufficient for all of our needs. Okay, I'm going to keep moving. In the same chapter, we see Jesus walking on the water. If you go down to verse 16, uh, you can see Jesus is walking on the water. This is crazy. Well, verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that the word had come, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, that they perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when he was now come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went after, uh, went over. I'm sorry, the sea toward Capernaum, and it was now dark, and Jesus was not uh, come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had uh, rowed about five and twenty, uh, five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Je- they see Jesus walking <clears throat> on the sea and drawing nigh into the ship, and they were afraid. For he saith unto them, It is I. Be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at uh, the land which uh, whither they went. <clears throat> and so uh, here we see that Jesus, um, oops, I'm one behind, aren't I? The miracle of walking on the water. Jesus is literally out walking on the water. Uh, it's crazy. And so the day, it says in verse 22, the day following when the people which stood on the uh, other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save the one whither his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, albeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh into the place where they did eat bread after that 
the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum to see, uh, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, uh, when camest thou hither? And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto the everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him that, that uh, hath God the Father sealed. For him hath God the Father sealed. And when they uh, and then said they unto him, What shall we do? They uh, that we might work the works of God. And Jesus answered and said unto them. This is the work of God, that ye believe on uh, him whom he hath sent. <clears throat> and so there he, he uh, let's see, I, let me make sure. I'm, I've gone a little too far. But bottom line is he's trying to, he's trying to uh, present himself to the, to the nation of Israel. And uh, they're, they're picking up on the fact that um, he is able to, you know, his disciples once again see him walking on water. But he's pointing out to them that they're not receiving, um, after that miracle, walking on water, they're not receiving uh, what he uh, was offering, which was a spiritual fruit. They just were coming because of the physical needs being met. So Jesus not only walked on water, but he also transported his disciples through time and space to arrive at the shore instantly upon receiving him into their boat. So there's an incredible picture there as well. Um, and he, all of a sudden, they're just as soon as he gets in the boat, they're at the shore. How did he do that? I have no idea. Uh, but he did it. Uh, so there's a lot going on with Jesus just rolling across the seashore, you know, and, and uh, all this water and or all this wind. And this isn't the only time, of course. Uh, so Jesus not only walked on the water, he transported his disciples through time and space, and they safely arrived at their shore. There will be a day when we will be translated in an instant, right? And we'll be caught up together with the Lord in the air. And, um, and so uh, you just want to make sure you have Jesus in your boat, right? So... Um, in your in your house there, so there there in a, we see in John twenty and seventeen that uh, John twenty seventeen when Jesus rose again, he said, "Mary, touch me not, because I've not yet ascended to my Father." You guys familiar with that? Getting back to the resurrection, well, Jesus was able to transcend time, transcend time and space, and go to the third heaven, present himself before the throne of God, and come back within like forty five minutes, an hour, some estimate. And he's on the road to Emmaus talking to his disciples. I mean, that quick. And then he's, that night he's in the upper room. So he's able to go through literally light, light, light speed, you know, faster than light speed in time to get to the throne of God and come back and manifest himself. So he's able to port through time and space with no problems. We also know he walks through walls and stuff like that. So, uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's showing off a little bit when he's walking on the water. He is the Lord of all. Lord of the creation, Lord of the universe. Uh, he even is the Lord of time and space, right? The time and space continuum is no problem for him. Uh, and so, because he's the creator of all. So there will be a day when we will be translated ourselves in an instant. That's the promise of 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm not going to turn to all that tonight. We can look at that in another Bible study. But the catching away of the church is associated with the resurrection. Not his resurrection alone, but our resurrection so when we go and we look at 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is defined in the first four verses, right? And he preaches unto us the gospel. This is the gospel, you know, the death, the burial, the resurrection. And then he goes on through the resurrection chapter, and then the, the, the promise there, the mystery that's revealed in John 5, or 1 Corinthians 15 
is our translation, our catching away, our, our ability to move through time and space like that. Boom. Uh, because we are with Jesus. He catches us away. And we forsake, And what happens is he, is he protects us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, from the wrath to come. Right? So we don't face the wrath to come. We get ported through time and space. We come back at the end of the, millennium, or the, end of the tribulation period uh, and, and rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And of course, we also go into eternity future with him. All right, so there's a lot going on uh, with God's ability to do that. And, uh, and when it comes to the resurrection, um, man, that wasn't the only time things just fast forwarded. Jesus Christ was able, after his resurrection, to move through time and space and get back and uh, continue his uh, education of the disciples. And, of course, you also see that he, that same night, remember what he did? He just shows up in the upper room. Like he, doesn't just, he doesn't knock. They're, in there, they're meeting together, and he's just like, poop, here I am. Hey, guys, what's up? That day at the road to Emmaus, he's sitting there talking with his disciples, and they're like, and then he just disappears right in front of them. They're like, whoa, and then they figure out that's, that was Jesus, you know. And so his resurrection, I mean, it includes some stuff that we don't talk a lot about. I mean, Baptists aren't supposed to talk about this stuff. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, 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 you know, long before current sci-fi, long before Marvel, where do you think they get all this stuff, right? They're having, you know, everybody's in some war, and all of a sudden everybody disappears, you know, and there's some pagan god sitting around with a big ugly chin controlling all that. Well, that's all perversion of what the reality is. You know, Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of creation. He's Lord of all, and he can travel through time and space. All right, so number six, the healing of the man born blind. Uh, I'm not going to read all of this for time, but over in John chapter 9, because uh, I, I do want to finish this up tonight. We have the healing of the blind, of the man born blind. Uh, and so um, Jesus passed by and saw a man which was blind from his birth. So this is someone who was blind from, from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus tells them that, that uh, uh, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but the works of, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is yet day, and the night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and then and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is interpreted, sent. And he went uh, his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. And so he was able to heal this blind man. And uh, what an incredible miracle that was. So this miracle was a confirmation to the Jewish leadership that Jesus was Messiah. Jesus clearly demonstrates that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, Again, he's he's doing these healings a lot of times on the Sabbath day to prove that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, And so uh, I'm trying to look at the key on that here. the time frame on this one. I do think this also occurred on the Sabbath day. Oh, verse 14, yeah. And it was the Sabbath day, thank you, when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Um, and again, you have this, let's look at this discourse. The neighbors therefore, uh, the neighbors therefore, in verse 8, and, and they which before had seen him that had was blind said, is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, this is he, this, this is he, and others said, he is like him, but he... Uh, he said, I am he, I'm the guy. Therefore said they unto him, how were thine eyes opened? And he answered and said, 
A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? And he saith, I know not. Like I couldn't see until I washed in the pool. How do I know? Right? Verse thirteen. And they and they brought to uh, they they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he said unto them, He put clay on my eyes, and I wa- I was washed, and and do see. And therefore said uh, some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man, What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? And he said, uh, he said, he is a prophet, but the Jews did not believe concerning him, and he had, that had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight, and they asked them, saying, "Is this your son, who uh, you say was born blind, and how then doth he now see?" And his parents answered and said, "And said, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But what uh, mean? But but <clears throat> but by what means? How?" Uh, he now uh, seeth, we know not, or hath opened his eyes, we know not, but he is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. And I love the answer, because these parents are like, I don't know, ask my son, he's the one that's got his eyesight. I mean, and uh, it's just amazing, because these guys, the, the Jews just could not fathom that this miracle was real. Again, a lot of witnesses, uh, this miracle was confirmation to the leadership. God I use this to go to the Pharisees very clearly on the Sabbath day to confirm that Jesus Christ, again, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, and so Jesus is pointing out also that the Jews themselves right, are going into blindness. So we know in Romans chapter uh, uh, 9 through 11, Romans chapter 11 says, blindness in part has happened unto the Jews, or unto Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so uh, Israel went blind because they rejected their Messiah. Okay, so uh, the last miracle here, number seven, is the raising of Lazarus. I think we're familiar with that. For time's sake, I'm going to kind of kind of blast through that. But you can flip over to chapter eleven, and uh, again, Jesus waits a few days before he responds. Uh, this is a great passage to to if you go back and re- read it in detail. In John chapter eleven, uh, Thomas, uh, doubting Thomas as we've come to know him, was very zealous here. And of all the disciples, they were debating going to see, uh, going over, because where Bethany is is right next to Jerusalem, and they knew that there was death warrants out for Jesus. They already knew that they were wanting to kill him. And uh, and so they were like, I, I, I'm not sure we should go. And they were laying back, and uh, he was already gone. And, you know, and so they're like, uh, well, what are we going to do? And, and Thomas is like, well, let's go. Let's go die for Jesus. You know, he's all zealous. He's ready to go die. Uh, he's ready to, to to get it done, and so Thomas was no wimp, right? It wasn't like he wasn't a believer. He was super super committed, but things didn't go the way he wanted. And uh, of course, uh, he ended up getting that all figured out when he plugged into Jesus there in John chapter twenty one. But here we see that um, after Jesus figures out or not figures out, Jesus allows us to go on. Uh, Martha and Mary are, are you know obviously bereaved at the loss of their brother, and. Um, Verse 16 is the verse I was... Let's pick it in verse 14. Then then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, uh, because they said he was sleeping. So he's like, he's dead, guys. Uh, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, 
unto his fellow disciples. Let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, he's like foregone conclusion. Jesus is going to go get killed right now. Uh, and uh, and let's go with him so we can all die together, you know. And so then when Jesus came, uh, he he found that he was laying in the grave for four days already. So he's four days gone. He's rigor mortis is set in. He is gone, and uh, he stinketh right. And um, and the Bible says in verse eighteen, now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about fifteen furlongs off, and many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha also. Or Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. And Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he be, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth, believeth in, in me, shall never die. Believest thou this? And she saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come in the world. And when he had so said, she went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus was not yet come to the town, but... Uh, was in the place where Martha met him. And the Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went and followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then uh, when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, uh, my brother had not died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have ye laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Here Jesus weeps in verse 35. Uh, he weeps with them. And then, say, then said the Jews, Behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? So they're getting the fact that he's doing these miracles. Jesus, uh, therefore, again, groaning in himself, coming to the grave. It was, uh, it was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. And Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot in grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Lose him and let him go. So you guys know the rest of the story there. As noticed in verse 46, But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. So this message is getting back to the leadership. And that's the whole uh, real point of all of this is that all these miracles were not done in a closet. Later on, um, in the book of uh, 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 in the book of Acts, when Paul was giving his testimony, he says these weren't done in a closet. Everyone knows Jesus rose again. These Pharisees knew that not only he rose again, but he caused people like Lazarus to rise. Lazarus was alive after the resurrection, so you could go talk to Lazarus. The stuff wasn't done like like nobody knew about it. It was done where everyone knew about it, and uh, it was no small matter. 
King Agrippa knew about it. Everybody knew about it. Uh, and so the resurrection was a reality. In John eleven twenty five, 25, uh, Jesus tells her that he is the resurrection and the life. So near the end of his gospel account, uh, John said, And as many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book, but these are written that you may believe on, or that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the believing you might have life through his name. And that's what the book of John's all about, is that you might believe, and believing, of course, in the resurrection is what it is all about. So, um, so that is the second thing, all those attesting miracles. Now, you can take a guy like, well, several guys have taken and tried to disprove this, but when you start putting all of this together with an objective mind, many lawyers throughout the centuries have come to the conclusion that there is more evidence for who Jesus Christ is in the resurrection than many other historical facts that you want to find. I mean, including George Washington and things that are a lot closer in history. Uh, so there's there's all these eyewitnesses accounts. There's Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 saying, oh yeah, there's 500 brethren right now you can go talk to. I mean, all of these, these were historical places, historical people. They'll harmonize. Now we believe it because of the very last point that I already touched on. Uh, but but this is an incredible picture. And of course, what God wants to do is raise Israel from the dead uh, and raise us from the dead. And there's a picture there, a slight hint also of the resurrection. I have several more uh, verses that I put up there. Oh, I didn't put them up there. So for your own reference, um, you can get Mark chapter 15. And Oh, no, no, let me back up. I'm going to the next point. So we've talked about uh, the accurate prophecies, the attesting miracles, the agonizing death. Um, man, I was wanting to take some time and, and uh, look at, at Psalm 22, and, and you know, verse by verse. But for tonight, we're, we only got a couple minutes. We're not going to have time. So you can grab those references. I'm just going to give you Mark 15:34. It says, "In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, uh, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" Right, so he uh, again fulfills all those Old Testament prophecies that we've already looked at. Hebrews five seven says, "Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard, and that he feared, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience through the things that he suffered." Why did Jesus have such an agonizing death death on the cross? Well, number one, for us, he came to die for us on the cross. Number two, he'd never been separated from fellowship with the Father. The agony of that was incredible. Uh, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So if you want to get a blow by blow, for time's sake, I'm not going to do it, but we could read Psalm chapter 22, and you will literally get an idea of what Jesus Christ is thinking as he's on the cross. Uh, It says in verse 7, just as an example, All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have set, uh, beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs, being Gentiles, the Romans, have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I might tell all my bones. 
They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots from upon my vesture. I could go on, but it's detail after detail of Jesus Christ on the cross in Psalm chapter 22. In Psalm chapter 18, he goes on to say, The sorrows of death come past me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell come past me about, and the snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and, he, and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. And again, if you take and you complete Psalm chapter 22, you will see Jesus turn from despair to victory, uh, to the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He make it, I mean, it just goes right on into it. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's all prophecy. It's all there. It's all real. Psalm 52 and verse 14, As many as were stonied at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the son of men. Isaiah 50 and verse 5, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away my back. I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. I mean, every one of these prophecies Jesus fulfilled, it was an agonizing, terrible death. And by the way, most men would not have made it as far as Jesus did. Just the lashing that they gave him would have killed him. I think Pilate was probably hoping that, and uh, it didn't work. Of course, Jesus was a supernatural man. He was all man, but he was all God. He was hard to kill. And, uh, but he did eventually uh, give up the ghost. All right, so uh, let me wrap this up tonight. So the, the, the uh, fourth one is antagonistic authorities, Matthew 28, 11 through 15. After a, after a word of Jesus' resurrection began to spread, the Jews, Jewish authorities wanted to stop uh, the people from believing upon him. Uh, so producing the body of Jesus would have been the best way to do that, but they couldn't. So even with the support from the Roman authorities, they were never able to produce a body. So Matthew 28:11 through 15 says this, Now when they were going, when they were going uh, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say, ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this has come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So the Jews, uh, this is one thing that Mike uh, Van Horn brought up, if, if you wonder who did believe in the resurrection, the Jewish leadership. They're like, they didn't pretend to think that Jesus wasn't resurrected. They just said, go lie about it and say that his disciples took the body. So they evidently, uh, many of the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. So that would put the fear of God in you. Of course, many Jews, many priests did come to Christ at the preaching of the gospel by the apostles. So uh, I'm sure some of those guys were like, whoa. Uh, they weren't buying, the, you know, they were, they were definitely not buying the, Fake news, man. They were like, hey, I'm, this, this dude, I think he rose again, right? And so, uh, but there was antagonistic authorities, the, both the, uh, mainly Jewish, but also, of course, Gentile as well. Um, and then, of course, the absent body just goes hand in hand with this. Um, the body was never found. The chief priest set a guard around Jesus' tomb to make sure the body was not stolen by his disciples. And those guards knew their lives could be at stake if they failed their duty. So it wasn't a light matter. But on the third day, Jesus was gone nonetheless. So once they regained their senses, the guards reported to the chief priests that, that all that had happened. And why would they take that risk? Uh, because they knew that there was no body to recover. They're not going to just randomly go over and say, oh, you know, the body just disappeared. You think those guards are going to let these disciples? They, they can't even chop a guy's ear, head off right, right? Peter took a guy's ear off. 
There is no disciples taking the body of Jesus. It doesn't even make sense when you think about the absent body because they knew that there was no body to recover. That's why they went and told them. They didn't know where the body was. And Matthew 27, 62-66 even says that. Now the next day that followed, the day of, of uh, the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, remember that thou <clears throat> that, that deceiver s- said while he was yet alive, after three days I w- will rise again. They took that seriously because they thought the, they, they knew something was a fixing on that third day. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So they clearly knew what was at stake. This, this prophecy of the rising from the dead, they already knew that Lazarus rose again, right? So they're, they're all about the resurrection. They knew what they were up against. And, uh, and of course, Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way and make it sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. I mean, these guys weren't playing. They were serious about making sure nothing happened at the tomb. And nonetheless, something happened at the tomb. Notice they didn't accuse the Romans of stealing the body, and they didn't accuse, the Jewish leadership didn't accuse the Jews of, of the disciples of stealing the body. They just paid people off to lie about it. All right, and the sixth thing, as I mentioned earlier tonight, was the amazed disciples. So after Jesus' arrest, most of his disciples fled, and it's clear from their reaction that they despised the cross and were not anticipating the resurrection. Nobody wanted to be on a Roman cross. Nobody was rushing to take Jesus' place. They were all running. And, uh, and, uh, and so two of his disciples did not recognize the risen Jesus as he was teaching them on the road to Emmaus, uh, and as he was relating to them the scripture that fulfilled his own self. And so their skepticism and shock showed how they clearly uh, were not part of some pre-planned hoax. None of the disciples got together and figured out how to steal the body of Jesus. That's just crazy. And everything that's recorded about that uh, supports it. So for time's sake, I'm, you got the references. I'm just going to keep moving because I need to be done. Um, the seventh thing is the agreeing eyewitnesses. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared over 500. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, they testified to his resurrection. Uh, we do not have a record of anyone disputing their testimony, uh, saying I was there, but it was a hoax. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6 says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of, at once, 500 witnesses at one time, of whom the greater part remain in this present, but some are fallen asleep. So Paul is saying some 20 years after Jesus resurrected, hey, there's 500 people almost that you can go find that will testify they, see Jesus, they saw Jesus after the resurrection. 500 people, that's a lot of people um, testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Acts 26, uh, verse 24 through 28 is the passage I was referencing earlier. When Paul's, uh, again, even further down the line, um, uh, before 70 A.D., but still some 30 years after the resurrection at least, um, before Paul gets uh, killed, uh, he's telling King Agrippa, uh, he says, and, and, uh, or with Festus, he said, and thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness, for the king knoweth all these things before whom I speak freely. I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner." King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I mean, King Agrippa, almost, but not quite. 
was persuaded because he knew the prophecies. He knew that they had been fulfilled in Jesus. He knew this didn't happen. He said, this didn't happen in a corner. This is happening in front of everybody. The, the record of Acts uh, some years later was very clear that King Agrippa knew all about it. So the resurrection of Jesus was well known and it was well documented. And it was such common knowledge that even the principalities understood it and, and counted it as a fact. And so, again, uh, a, lot of, a lot of evidence there. And lastly, the apostolic martyrs. This, above all things, um, is uh, it's not the last. I'm almost done. So the apostolic martyrs, these guys all uh, died as witnesses, meaning they gave their life as martyrs. Nobody would do that for a lie. And there's some verses up there you can look at. The agnostic historians... Uh, contemporary non-Christian historians report that Jesus was reputed to have risen from the dead and uh, um, his followers were willing to die rather than recant their beliefs in Jesus. So even lost people know that. It's a historical fact and it's going on to this very day. I mean, ISIS killed more Christians than have been killed in a long time. And so, uh, and that's a fact of contemporary history. It's a fact of ancient history. And lastly, the attesting spirit, which I've touched on earlier, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, when God, uh, after Jesus ascended, he left his spirit with us to teach us all things whatsoever God has said to us. And uh, upon the, the indwelling Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost teaches us these things and works through us, which those of us that are Christians, we know that. And it's, it's really easy to believe because we have the power of the spirit. Uh, but uh, man, the world, they don't get it. And so when we read 1 Corinthians 15, when we read, it, we read all these prophecies, we get it because the Holy Spirit of God teaches us uh, what the Word of God has to say. But the lost world doesn't get it. They just don't get it because they don't, uh, they don't believe what the prophecies say. Just like Pilate, just like the leadership of Israel, Jesus Christ is the Word and He has fulfilled His Word every little bit of it. So the resurrection is one of the most established truths of human history. And we have more evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ and His ministry than many other prominent humans in history. No one doubts the existence of Nero, Paul, Alexander the Great, uh, and it's given, <clears throat> and it is a given that these existed because of the historical record. The reason Jesus is maligned as just a man, or even worse, a myth, is because of the willing ignorance. Once one acknowledges that Jesus existed in history, then we must consider his claims and the prophecy of his power over the grave and our lives. And at, le- at length, the resistance to believe in the resurrection is a sign of perdition. And so my testimony, uh, once I acknowledged the claims of, of Jesus being God, then I had to reckon with the reality of the resurrection. And Jesus is not a distant figure of the past, but he's a present reality today. And so that is the, the reality of the resurrection is so important because you can't get saved by just understanding that Jesus lived a sinless life, he died on the cross, and he was buried. The, the best part of the news is he rose again on the third day, and I would add, he's alive right now, and I would add, he's coming back soon. And this is the age of grace, and we need to make sure we get the gospel out while we have time. So that's everything I have on that. That was my uh, 10 reasons, the A-list, and uh, you can take that and uh, put it in your archives and use it next time you need it. All right, any questions on all that? Sorry, I went a little over because we got a little late start due to some technical difficulties, but uh, we are ready to wrap it up. Okay, right, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father.